The key to eternal perspective is worship. When you see God clearly, you see everything else clearly. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Hello, students, please open your Bibles to the book of Job. We're going to begin today in Job chapter 11. We'll be covering a number of chapters today. As most of you know, we're in a series in the book of Job. We've often used the phrase, the patience of Job, to describe someone who is patient in the face of very, very difficult circumstances. This book begins with a prologue, which is written in prose, and it sets the stage for what follows. The main body of the drama of the book of Job is written in an, as an epic poem, and it consists of a series of dialogues or arguments between Job and his three friends. When they fail to persuade Job that he is wrong, a younger observer named Elihu speaks for several chapters. Job's arguments and his dialogues with his friends really are a record of their attempts to persuade him. Uh, that and explain to him and help him understand why good people suffer and bad people prosper. And all of them miss the mark. So, beginning in chapter 38, God himself speaks and reveals himself through a series of 70 questions to Job over a period of about four chapters. When God is finished, Job repents and his life is restored. We, as contemporary readers of Job, spend most of our time uh, on the fairy tale beginning and the really good news ending. The middle of the book, the bulk of the book, is messy, argumentative, uncertain, and painful, and so people often skip over it. However, the reality is most of our lives are messy, so the central portion of this book, these dialogues, are very, very important for us to read and, and understand and apply. The central issue of the book of Job is not suffering, as is commonly understood. This book seeks to reveal how God relates to people. Job's three friends believe that God behaves according to the principle of retribution or payback. In other words, God treats you like you treat him. If you are godly, God will always bless you in this life. If you are ungodly, God will always punish you in this life. Therefore, if you are suffering, you must be sinning, period, full stop. However, as we will see, God tested Job to demonstrate that human righteousness does not guarantee divine pr protection or prevent human suffering. It is God's sovereign goodness that determines what we experience, not our own goodness. Remember that Job was a wealthy, wise, godly, and good man who served God faithfully. 
At the beginning of this narrative, God himself declared that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. You can't get much better than that. Satan accused Job of only serving God for the goodies God gave him. Furthermore, Satan accused God of bribing Job and buying Job's loyalty with earthly blessings. If God took away Job's wealth and health, Satan said that Job would curse God. So God gave Satan permission to attack Job. In two separate incidents recorded at the beginning of the book, Satan took away Job's wealth, his health, his family, and his friends. He is now in intense pain, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Job cannot understand why he is suffering because he knows that he is innocent of wrongdoing. And his three, quote, friends, unquote, come to, quote, comfort him. However, instead of comforting him, they accuse him of sinning and then lying about the fact that he is sinning, in their opinion. So Job and his friends all share a common belief that God exists and that God is completely in control. There is no thought in the book of Job that God may be limited in his power to control his universe or control people. All of them believe in the law of cause and effect. Measurable effects have explainable causes. You just have to discover them. Therefore, since you are suffering and God controls everything, you must have done something to earn God's wrath. Now, that runs very counter to our contemporary culture, which rejects the idea of a sovereign creator God in any way, shape, or form. Our culture worships at the altar of evolutionary random chance as being the final explanation for the infinite complexities of the universe. So in the end, our culture believes that the origin of everything is random chance. There is no divine purpose because there is no personal infinite God. Job's friends and Job himself believe the following. Job's friends come to convince him that Suffering always and only results from specific sin, and God always and only punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous in this life. These assumptions are never questioned, and their positions never change throughout the book. Eliphaz speaks first, that's Job's first friend, Bildad, his second friend, and today we begin with the youngest and toughest, whose name is Zophar. Interestingly enough, the name Zophar literally means Twitter. And we're going to begin in Job 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Verse 4, For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak, and open his lips against you, and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Verse 11. For he knows false men, and he sees without investigating. Verse 13. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand before him. Verse 17. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Job responds by saying in chapter 13, verse 4. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? 
Will it be well when he examines you? Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? Here's our principle. When you speak for God, don't put your words in his mouth. Say what God says in the Bible. Let me repeat that. When you speak for God, don't put your words in his mouth. Say what God says in the Bible. So without any word from God or any evidence from Job's life, his three friends accuse him of sinning and they accuse God of punishing Job's for his sins. Now, it's really incredibly arrogant and ignorant to think that without any evidence, you can know that someone is sinning. It's even more arrogant to think that you know that God is punishing them. So Job's friends keep telling him that he needs to humble himself and ask God for forgiveness. Interesting, they don't think they need to humble themselves and ask God for wisdom to help Job. And, of course, Job calls them out for misrepresenting God and lying about God's character, which was accurate. This is so applicable to, for us today. You know, in our culture today, the name of God is used to justify all sorts of foolish behaviors and beliefs. Some people routinely say, quote, God told me this or that. Boy, if you say that, whatever comes out of your mouth next had better agree with the Bible or rest assured God didn't tell you anything. See, Zophar accuses Job of lying when Job claims to be innocent. As a matter of fact, Zophar believes that Job's sins are far greater than what he currently is being punished for. He says, Job, God has forgotten some of your sins. Actually, for the Christian, God has forgotten all our sins. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God has removed our transgressions from us because Jesus took our sins upon himself when he died on our place in the cross. However, it's important to remember in that era, no one knew anything about the coming of the Son of God who would take away the sins of the world. Job responds to his three friends' attacks with some very, very strong words. In chapter 12, verse 1, Job says, quote, then Job responded, Truly then you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. Verse 5. He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt, as prepared for those whose feet slip. Here's the principle. It's easy to become judgmental when your life is comfortable. It's easy to become judgmental when your life is comfortable. Job accuses his comfortable friends of giving superficial advice when they really don't understand the complexity of his problem. You know, when our life is going well, it's easy to conclude that other people have problems simply because they made bad decisions. Have you ever known someone who struggles with the same problem over and over and over and never seems to find a solution? Well, maybe the pain of the solution is greater than the pain of the problem. You know, if you confront a dysfunctional family situation, that may destroy the relationships within that family. So for someone in that family, they may say, well, living with a dysfunction may be less painful than losing your relationships. There are, sometimes there are benefits to keeping the problem and not fixing it. You know, keeping an adult child dependent and keeping that at home 
even though it's not working terribly well with the family relationships, may be better than having them living on the streets and being homeless. When your life is going well, it's easy to give superficial advice to people with problems, especially if you don't have that problem. However, sometimes God allows us to experience problems that have no earthly solution. He does this to teach us humility and patience and dependence on him alone. Job's friend Eliphaz now speaks for the second time, and his message is the same. His authority, as always, is only his own opinion, and he is very sure of it. He tells Job in chapter 15, verse 17, I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have seen I will also declare, verse 20, the wicked man writhes in pain all his days, and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless, verse 23. He wanders about for food, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand, verse 29. He will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure, and his grain will not bend to the ground, verse 32. It will be accomplished before his time, and his palm batch will not be green. Eliphaz says, look, the wicked are always in pain, and it lasts all their days. They are always starving and fearful and poverty-stricken. Their life is cut short, and they always die before their time. Well, the problem is that is not always the case at all. The Bible disagrees with Eliphaz. The psalmist Asaph says in Psalm 73, verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble like other people, nor are they plagued like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eyes bulge from fatness, the imagination of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades throughout the earth. Here's the principle. When we envy the wealth of the wicked, we are rejecting what God has entrusted to us. Let me repeat that. When we envy the wealth of the wicked, we are rejecting what God has entrusted to us. Now, contrary to Eliphaz, the psalmist Asaph observes that the wicked, in fact, often prosper in this life. He comments that the wicked seem to have limited trials and troubles. When they die, they die without suffering. They die fat, which in that era meant they did not go hungry. At that point in time, being overweight meant that you had a, enough to eat, more than enough to eat, which implied a life of comfort and wealth. And because trouble seems to pass the wicked by, Asaph says, they have become arrogant and violent. They blaspheme against God. They boast about how they're going to rule over all planet Earth. Asaph is having a crisis of faith. Here's the question. If a just God is ruling the Earth, why does he allow the wicked to prosper and the righteous to suffer? Like Job, Asaph is in despair and he almost loses his faith in God. He says in Psalm 73, verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, 
and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and punished every morning. Asaph's asking, look, what's the point of living a holy life? The wicked who hate God seem to be healthy and wealthy in this life. The righteous who follow God's commands experience trials and troubles every day. Asaph says, I confess my sin every day. I honor God in my life, and yet I suffer on a daily basis, and it never seems to stop. Now, this is exactly what Job's complaint is. And he responds by demanding a day in court with God. In Job 13, verse 3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue with God. Verse 14, Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Verse 18, Behold now, I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who could contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Verse 23. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Here's the principle. We often deceive ourselves about ourselves. Since God knows everything about us, we should rely on his assessment of us. Let me say that again. We often deceive ourselves about ourselves. Since God knows everything about us, we should rely on his assessment of us. Now, the book of Job is saturated with the language of the law. Job talks about legal case and courtroom trial, evidence, arguments, verdicts, vindication, etc. So Job is the plaintiff who is charging God with injustice. Job essentially says, I'm innocent. God is making me suffer without cause, and he owes me a hearing in court and an explanation. I demand a day in court where I can argue my case before God. He's probably going to kill me, but even though he does kill me, I'll still trust that he is a righteous God who will vindicate me and declare me innocent even after I'm dead. I've prepared my case, I know all the facts, and I know I'm right. So Job is very confident in his ability to assess his own righteousness and even present that before God in a persuasive manner. Here's a thought. Just because your conscience doesn't convict you of sin doesn't mean you have no sin. Let me say that again. Just because your conscience doesn't convict you of sin doesn't mean you have no sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.3, But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. The truth is we need to submit our lives to the floodlight of God's word as illuminated by the Holy Spirit. 
We must let God be the judge of our heart and our motives. Don't trust other people's judgment. Don't even trust your own judgment. Only trust God's evaluation. And that's where Job is making a fatal error. He's trusting his own assessment of his life more than God's. In his prayer, Job says, God, show me my sins. I don't know of any. He's so convinced he's right that he's willing to call God wrong. Now that is pride, and we know that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when Job complains to God and accuses God, he gets no answers. Heaven has gone silent. God has not responded to his prayers, his complaints, his accusations, or his tears. So Job concludes that God is his enemy who's trying to kill him. In chapter 16, verse 9, Job says, His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. Verse 12, I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me as his target. His arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Chapter 17, verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Verse 11. My days are past. My plans are torn apart. Even the wishes of my heart. Here's the principle. Suffering does not necessarily mean that God is angry with you. It's really important to remember this. Let me repeat it. Suffering does not necessarily mean that God is angry with you. Job describes God as an enemy on the battlefield, and he's very graphic. He says, God glares at me, shatters me, shakes me to pieces, makes me the target for his arrows. God splits open my kidneys, literally disembowels me, and attacks me relentlessly. Job says, I'm broken in pieces. I have no future. My life has been cut short. Everything I've planned has been literally ripped to pieces. My deepest desires have been destroyed, and God has left me without hope. Now, that is an extraordinarily bleak assessment coming from a man who's been in prolonged, intense pain and does not understand why. Sometimes our lives, and maybe Job felt like Humpty Dumpty. You know the rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Humpty Dumpty is often illustrated as an egg man sitting on a wall. You know, when an egg falls from a wall and splatters on the rocks, that's an irreversible event. You can make an omelet, but you can't unmake the omelet. You can drop the egg, but you can't repair it once it's fallen and shattered. Our lives feel like this sometimes. We experience losses like divorce, broken relationships, death, financial reversals, serious illnesses, surgeries, and so on. Now, all of these losses change, 
changes. Many of these losses are irreversible. In other words, we can go forward from them, but our lives will never be the same as before. It has made an irrevocable change in our lives. Now, Job believes that God is trying to break him like Humpty Dumpty, but he doesn't understand why. Suffering is forcing Job to reevaluate his concept of God. Job's friends, however, are very certain why Job is suffering. Bildad the Brutal gives his second speech in chapter 18, and it is harsh. In essence, Bildad says, Job, you are a wicked man, and your light will go out, which means you're going to die prematurely. Your sin has found you out, and you are trapped in your own net. Your sin has resulted in you having no posterity or survivor because your children got killed. You do not know God. And Job responds to this brutal accusation with a heartbreaking description of his life. If you have ever felt all alone, Job's description of himself will resonate with you. In Job 19, verse 13, Job describes himself and he says, God has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him or beg him with the words of my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me. And those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, oh pity me, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Here's the principle. Suffering can be lonely because it often repels other people. Suffering can be lonely because it often repels other people. You know, one of the side effects of suffering is often social isolation. Suffering frightens many people. And as a result, one often suffers alone. Some people actually consider suffering to be contagious, you know, like a virus. Some believe that, like Job's friends, that people suffer because God is angry with them. And some people have no idea how to help. So they stay away. If you believe that God is angry and therefore causing someone to suffer, then you won't help them because you'll be fearful that God will in fact be angry with you if you offer them compassion. So wrong beliefs can lead to wrong behavior. Now, Job does speak truth when he says that God is the ultimate source of his suffering. What he's mistaken about is why God arranged for him to suffer. Job's assumption is that God has unjustly allowed his suffering and it's creating a great deal of pain in his life. So Job became angry with God, Job judged God, and Job demanded that God give him an explanation. However, ultimately, the only perspective that began to help Job cope with his suffering was his seeing his suffering in light of eternity. 
And one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Verse 26, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. Here's the principle. The problem of human suffering will ultimately be resolved when Jesus, our Redeemer, returns to earth. Let me say that again. The problem of human suffering will ultimately be resolved when Jesus, our Redeemer, returns to earth. This statement from Job is one of the most remarkable statements in all the Bible. More than 2,000 years before the incarnation of the Messiah in Bethlehem, Job expresses faith in a personal Redeemer. We know that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible and revealed to Job the reality of a coming Redeemer because he certainly didn't know it by discovery. It had to be from Revelation. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job has faith that God exists, that there is a personal infinite God who is alive. Hebrews 11.6 says that he who comes to God must believe what? That God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Job not only says a redeemer, Job says, my redeemer. Job believes in a personal redeemer. He believes that God is a personal being who is knowable. The, the word for redeemer is interesting. It's a Hebrew word, goel, G-O-E-L. And, and that word for redeemer in Hebrew was usually a near relative. A relative who paid a ransom price to buy someone back out of slavery. If you had gotten into debt, many times you would be sold as a slave or you would indenture yourself as a servant to the person you owed the debt to and you would work off your debt through labor. A goel or a redeemer is someone who would come and buy you back from that slavery and set you free. So Job knew that he needed a redeemer. He knew he was not blameless. He, he, he was blameless in the sense that there was nothing you could charge his life with, but he knew he wasn't sinless. So he knew he needed the Redeemer. And he said, at the last, my Redeemer will take a stand on the earth. Which is utterly intriguing because Job believed that God would physically come back to earth. By the way, that was not a new belief. The book of Jude, Jude 1.14 says, It was about those people that Enoch... In the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, quote, Behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. So the belief that God was going to come back to earth as a redeemer is an ancient one from the time of Adam. God is coming back to earth. We know that. And when he does, he will right all wrongs and deal with sin and sinners. Because we know that God, the judge of all the earth, always does what is right. God, the creator, will impose his perfect will on his creation. James 5, 7 says that we need to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Job, interestingly enough, goes further than that. He says, from my flesh I shall see God, which means Job believed in physical bodily resurrection. Even after his skin was destroyed, Job believed that he would see God from his flesh with his eyes. And that means that Job believed in physical resurrection after death.
We know that is true. The great resurrection chapter talks about that, 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 1 Corinthians 15.42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown as dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What is absolutely intriguing is that Job now sees his troubles, his trials, his suffering, and his sorrow from an eternal perspective, from the perspective of a coming Redeemer who Job will have a personal relationship and see after his death. And the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Bible that there will be no suffering when you have your resurrection body, and we know that that is coming. Job does believe that judgment was a reality for all people, which the New Testament certainly agrees with. Hebrews 9.27 says, quote, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So this chapter, chapter 19, is a pivotal chapter in the book of Job. It's a turning point in Job's perspective. He now finally begins to view his life and his sufferings from an eternal perspective, from God's point of view. Before, he could not understand how he could be vindicated on earth. Now he sees that God's perfect justice will not necessarily be done in this life, but it will certainly be done after death. Job now agrees with Asaph, who centuries later said in Psalm 73, When I pondered to understand this, Asaph is talking about the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous in this life. Asaph says, When I pondered to understand this conundrum, how the, pro how the wicked be could be prosperous and the righteous could suffer in this life, Quote, it was troublesome in my sight until, verse 17, I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. He's talking about the end of the wicked. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You have cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Here's the principle. The key to eternal perspective is worship. When you see God clearly, you see everything else clearly. Let me repeat that. The key to eternal perspective is worship. When you see God clearly, you see everything else clearly. Things which make no sense from an earthly perspective make perfect sense when we understand them from God's point of view. The truth of it is, in this life, sometimes the wicked prosper. And sometimes the righteous suffer. However, after death, God will call everyone to account. Perfect justice will be done in eternity. It doesn't mean it will be done in this life. God will make everything right when he returns. Until then, our job is to trust him. So as we go through our days and weeks and months and years, and we experience suffering and sorrow and pain and death and all the, the, the vicissitudes, if you will, of this life, and you will encounter them this coming week, I promise you, this coming month, absolutely this coming year, 
and your loved ones will as well, it's extremely important to understand we will not see them clearly until we see them from God's point of view. Because God is planning for eternity. God is not simply planning for this life and only this life. God has our best interests in mind from eternity standpoint. And the only way we really understand eternal perspective is to come into the presence of the eternal one. And the way to obtain God's perspective is through worship. When we exalt him as our creator, as our redeemer, we ask him to show us, to help us understand and to help us accept his plan for our life. And his plan for our life, like his plan for Job's life, can in fact and will in fact at some points in our life involve suffering and troubles and trials. And that will challenge us in our relationship to God. It will challenge us as to our perspective. How do we see the Lord? Do we see him in his fullness as scripture describes him? Or we simply do we see him as the God who's supposed to give us the goodies in this life and reward us based on our goodness as opposed to his goodness. The fact is God loves us so much and he wants to make us like Jesus that he's willing to allow and even arrange for us to go through troubles and trials like he did with Job to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. Let's go ahead and summarize and then Tom will come up and do prayer and praise. Point number one. When you speak for God, don't put your words in his mouth. Say what God says in the Bible. Number two, it's easy to become judgmental when your life is comfortable. It's easy to become judgmental as long as your life is comfortable. Number three, when we envy the wealth of the wicked, we are rejecting what God has entrusted to us. We take our eyes off of the Lord at that point in time, and we put our eyes on other people. And we begin to be envious of their, quote, easy life, their prosperous life. And we fail to understand the end of their life, which is not with the Lord. It's separated from the Lord. When we take our eyes off the Lord, we always wind up in, with envy or problems. Or then we begin to judge God, saying, God, you're not fair. So our focus has to stay on the Lord. Number four. We often deceive ourselves about ourselves. Since God knows everything about us, we should rely on his assessment of us. Don't spend too much time looking in the mirror. Spend a whole lot more time looking in God's word and accept what he says about you because his word to you is truth. Next, suffering does not necessarily mean that God is angry with you. Don't jump to the conclusion that just because you're suffering, you're under God's judgment. God loves you, and based on his love as his child, as one who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, he may choose to allow you to suffer, to make you more like his son. That's an act of love, not an act of judgment. Lastly, suffering can be lonely because it often repels other people. And that's one of the curses, I guess, the hardships of suffering, is that suffering repels other people because it, many times it instills fear in them. I don't want to get too close to this person because I don't know what to say. When you have friends that are suffering, believe me, number one, pray for them. Number two, be present with them. 
Just go and be present. You don't have to say anything brilliant. We know that our words are not necessarily going to end their pain. You can minister to them by simply being with them and praying with them and just loving them. This is an encouragement for us to do that. Next, the problem of human suffering will ultimately be resolved when Jesus, our Redeemer, returns to earth. We're going in this life because of sin, and we live in a fallen world, we're going to struggle with suffering. And that's going to be part and parcel of a sinful, broken world until Jesus, our Redeemer, returns to earth, puts an end to sin, suffering, sickness, wicked ones, and wickedness, and establishes kingdom and rules the nation, the world, from uh, Jerusalem. And that day is coming, and we need to look forward to that with hope. And then lastly, the key to eternal perspective is worship. When you see God clearly, you see everything else clearly. So when you were trying to understand and struggle through why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, it is terribly easy for us to make ourselves the center, and we judge God by our standards of righteousness, as opposed to make God the center, and we ask him to show us what he wants us to know and what he wants us to learn and how he wants us to adjust our lives in light of what he's allowing us to experience at this point in time. Now, this was a lot to cover today. This is a very rich passage. I appreciate your patience and we'll be praying for us this week as we go through this that we will uh, make time to apply it and listen to what the Lord says. Never forget that I love you. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.